Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. People that just love to fix cars and, oh, their wife has a really good job or their husband has a really good job where they get the health insurance and the benefits so they can just work for the money. That's what we're forcing. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. sitting here tonight with a really good friend of mine matt fonzel uh matt how do you feel tonight i mean i'm i'm still breathing so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's pretty good that's the main thing right it's it's been um it's been a long winter for us up here we're just finally starting to get rid of it and it's been i think that today's the it feels like the 10th day in a row <laughs> it's rained and uh the grass is like super long. Everything's starting to, ditches are flooding. It's it's a lot of fun. So we're starting to finally roll down to the end of the tire season, which is always a plus because my body hurts from doing it. And I mean, we've got uh, a young apprentice that's kind of, we've had him now, I guess, about three months, four months. And he's come along pretty good, which, but, you know, it, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's not how old you get. There's just some speed factor, right, from Oh, yeah. How many doing a million sets versus him not doing a thousand yet? So I still get scrubbing in on a lot of them. And it's like, man, you know, I would have not thought at almost 48 that I'd still be touching tires, but, you know, <laughs> it would be a lot worse, right? So that's going to always be worse. Yeah. How about you guys? Well, it's dried up a little bit. I, I should say it's dried up quite a bit because even though it seems like it rained just a few days ago and then we had the snow melt, got hit with some more snow got a snow melt it's been kind of muddy and everything yeah and driving home tonight uh there's a few tractors out in the fields um well, one of them was planting and then most of them are uh tilling or what you know with the uh um 
they don't really work the soil like they used to, right? So the mm-hmm. soil saving type techniques they're using, just a dust storm. It's a crazy dust storm. Even the plant are just a terrible dust storm. And it's uh-huh. like it was so wet just a couple of days ago. And now you're out in the fields and you can barely see the tractor with all the uh, dust and dirt, debris in the air. Mm-hmm. So. And you, you, so you've had snow recently. We've been probably, I don't think we even had a flurry for the last, it's been probably three weeks tomorrow that since we've had even like any kind of flurry. So yeah, I think we, cause it all melted. Right. And everybody thinks it's spring and you got the birds chirping and everything starting to see the grass turn a little green. And then inevitably we get hit one more time and usually it's a wet, heavy snow. You know, I hate to put like a depth on it, but usually a two, three, four inches, yeah. it's super heavy breaks branches breaks trees mm-hmm. it happens like every year and every year everyone seems so surprised it happened yeah i don't know caught off guard so yeah <laughs> and you guys probably don't do as many tires as me you're predominantly your shop do you would you say that you guys kind of specialize in diag or is it just like no you're general all around you do it and everything it's just yeah the shop the shop itself is bumper to bumper everything except collision Mm-hmm. How big know, body is body work? We don't do any. Uh, the shop itself is about ten thousand square feet, and I think we have count if we count the uh, alignment machine, alignment rack. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have eight hoists, and uh, my area. So what's odd about the shop is it's very compartmentalized. There's almost like rooms, okay. if you will. So my room will fit three vehicles across, you know, left to right, and then I can usually squeeze one or two behind those and that's just my area and that's all flat Mm -hmm. and then we have an alignment bay that's basically a room with the four post hunter and the hawkeye uh, elite um, alignment system in there and so that's very compartmentalized and then we have kind of really two other shop areas one of those we call like the big shop and that's got uh, four hoists and then uh, another section that's a little bit smaller that's two hoists and uh and the way back kind of by the tire machine and the wheel balancer is another hoist yeah nice and uh, i should probably ask what's the name of the shop uh riverside automotive riverside automotive and you're in red wing yep red wing minnesota which is home of the boots yes the red wing shoes and boots very that's cool where it was born and and you've been at this shop quite a while yeah i think it's like a, 11 years now maybe going on 12 nice maybe it is 12 years did you did you kind of move around a lot before that like or i mean i so i kind of know your 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 background a little bit like i i first saw your name on iatn but you and i didn't really connect until facebook you know i was on iatn before there was a facebook and then when facebook kind of came along i was not i I wasted enough time on facebook every day it seemed like i just went away from iatn but I, i i remember seeing you in there way back when different posts and you know talking with some of the sharpest minds and i was like that guy really knows what he's talking about so i was probably just parroting somebody else that was way smarter than me (laughs) but give us kind of give us kind of your your what got you into it i mean did you grow up on a farm and kind of was around it or well i grew up on a farm and then maybe even more importantly is my grandparents 
my dad's parents owned a farm implement dealer. So when they first opened it long before I was born and maybe even maybe even before my dad was born, but it would have been open while he was uh, a kid. It was Minneapolis and Moline. That's what they sold mm-hmm. in service. And after really, I think World War II is the slow demise of Minneapolis and Moline. So when they kind of went belly up and got bought out, my grandpa switched to Massey Ferguson. And then uh, for the implement stuff, the what they would pull, the balers and the planters and all that, they went with uh, Spear. At the time, it was Speary, New Holland. And then after a while, I'd have been pretty little yet, but Ford bought out New Holland, Spirit New Holland. So then it was Ford New Holland. Uh, so yeah, that that meant that was a big deal growing up on the farm and back in the time where you could really fix stuff in the the field mm-hmm. and being around that uh, helped a lot. And up at the implement, I was still pretty little when they were still doing. Uh, machinery and right around i think like 88 is when ford specifically said if you're going to be a dealer you're going to have to put in this computer system uh cataloging service information stuff that we think nothing of nowadays but back then it was a big deal uh everything else was microfish at the time and uh kind of had this file cabinet was how you looked up parts and it worked but um it wasn't a computer no and the system was a lot of money. If I remember right, it was something to the tune of a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar investment. In way back in like, are we talking nineteen eighty money? Yeah, nineteen eighty-seven, nineteen eighty-eight. So a substantial amount of money. Could, yeah. So he's like, home. he told him the pound sand. Uh, he got out of the implement um, portion of it. No more tractors, no more machinery. What he had taken on as a sideline again, long before I was born, was the farmers, you know, they have trees falling into the field and they need to clear it out. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't find a place to fix their saws or buy a good chainsaw. And at the time, home light was considered pretty good. Right. Way back. And they uh, took on home light for a while. And then this rep shows up one day with a super strong Swedish accent. Mm-hmm. And he sells, he sold Jensrud or what we call Jonsrud, and then some places call it Jonsred. And the thing with home lights were, and most most chainsaws at back in the day, if you let them just sit on the ground and idle while you're throwing brush or whatever, you'd go pick it up and hit the throttle and probably die. Right, and you'd have to start it back up. So this uh, Jonsrud rep starts one of his saws, and I'm pretty sure it was like a 601. Lets it sit outside and idle while him and my grandpa. Are shooting the breeze and then my grandpa goes out picks it up hits the throttle revs way up and my grandpa says something like okay i'll take four of them Mm -hmm. and that started the forestry and garden type of stuff where we started out with johnson then he got husqvarna and eventually got steel uh, or still i guess depending on where you are in the country and then um the machinery went away so right around late late middle school and all throughout high school very few tractor and implement repairs, but lots of chainsaws, trimmers, blowers. And that's that's where I picked up a lot of the troubleshooting stuff. I'd watch my dad do it, and I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be, I, I wanted somebody to bring their saw up and complain about something. I would go outside with it, pull on it a few times, or start it up and listen to it and just kind of know what's wrong. And I yeah. worked really hard at it. So 
I I think I've told the story before. It would have been, man, probably around 11 years old, 10. I told my dad I wanted to fix chainsaws like him. Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed at me and he went up, you know, the implement property had this really, really big, big machine shed for uh, storage. And a lot of what they stored was old chainsaws. People trade in their junk, they'd throw them in a, a bin and then you had used parts. Mm-hmm. So he went up and he grabbed two John's Reed 621 saws and set them down on a little bench and said, make one good one. And I think he thought I would work on it for like five minutes, get bored and go do something else. Right. You know, see if I could get my grandpa to let me go drive one of the tractors again or something like that. Uh, but I didn't. I, I don't, it never occurred to me to quit. That's good. Yeah. And so I took them all apart and, uh, picked out the good pieces and I got some help. I, it wasn't like total solo here, but got a little bit of help where you would expect to get some help. And eventually I had it all put together and I had spark and I was trying to get it to start and I couldn't get it to start. And my dad <laughs> went out and pulled on it like three times and goes, I know what's wrong with it. And he pulls the carburetor off and we pull it apart together. And I had rebuilt the carburetor, but on the diaphragm, there was a kind of a little peg that's got to slip into the lever on the needle and see it and i didn't do that and he yeah. kind of laughed because he had done that before mm-hmm. and uh so that's yeah then that saw started and ran and my grandpa said put a new chain and bar on it and put it on the used car or sorry <laughs> the used saw yep. shelf and i did that and a couple days later i stopped in after school the school bus had dropped me off there and um he handed me like a hundred dollars and he said, your saw sold. So, uh, you know, that was, yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. It's good money. And back then for 12 year old boy, right. Yeah. I blew it all on, uh, model chain or, uh, model tractors that he sold up there. Yeah. So the money stayed within the business. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It was very strategic on his part, I think. But I mean, that's, (laughs) that's kind of, I mean, you could kind of say that kind of was your first it really lit the fire into you, right? To that you enjoyed it and you have a nap a knack for it. So you know Yeah, I, I think I always like to figure stuff out. I always wanted to know how something worked. I always wanted to be able to figure out what, what was broken. I didn't always like actually doing the work fixing it, mm-hmm. but I did like to figure it out. Like could I figure out why whatever didn't work, it didn't matter what it was. And, uh, you know, they bought a new VCR and couldn't get it hooked up. And I was right up my alley. I, I figured it out. I was always up with like that too. Like I wasn't interested in, you know, um, you could show me the insides of an automatic transmission and I'd be like, okay, that's cool. Right. But if you showed me the, the circuitry that made it work, that was way more interesting to me. Right. Cause I mean, it was, I wanted to be. Because my background at the dealer was you'd see a lot of guys that, you know, it was rebuilt and it still was in limp, right? And you're like, oh, and it would kick over and you're just like, it'd it'd wind up in my vein. It's like, well, this can't be that complicated, right? Like it's not, we're talking like, you know, 98 caravan, right? As an example, it's like, it's yeah, okay, so there's some stuff going on there, but it's really like, it's not what what we're used to dealing with now. And, you know, I can still remember the first couple ones that I figured out and it's just like, oh, okay, the relay circuits are bad. That's why it's in limp because it, it doesn't know what to do. It's dumb, right? And um, I remember <laughs> I bought a, well, it was a Dodge Shadow for a hundred bucks from a customer and it had high mileage on it. 
and the transmission had already been rebuilt twice in the life of the car. And they were a regular customer at the dealer. And of course it comes back in and it had been rebuilt like I want to say 15 months before and say 30,000 miles, right? So not a lot, but there was no warranty left on it. And they were like, ah, I'm getting rid of this car. And um, a former mentor of mine, he was big into front wheel drive, uh, Chrysler, everything from the old GLHs to anything, right? And he was always buying parts. So I'm like, well, I'll buy this car because I know it's got a good engine. And, uh, you know, and I took it and I don't know. It was probably three o'clock uh, shop closed down, kind of got pretty slow around four. I remember pulling it in and like tearing through the circuits and finding like a broken wire down in the fender well area for the main relay for the TCM. And like, I was still can remember I'm, I'm driving that car around the parking lot and it's shifting after buying it for a hundred bucks. And I called up my friend and I'm like, I got this shadow here that, um, you know, the transmission was rebuilt just a little while ago. And I said, they just traded it. Do you need it? He's like, yeah. He's like, I'll give you 400 bucks for it. So that was the first time for me that was like, and I'm not, I, I don't want to be in the business of flipping cars, but to me, that was pretty smart that you could take something that somebody just was like, not interested in putting like your, like your, like your saw. And, you know, putting a few hours time into it, getting something that, you know, other people would have maybe just chucked a module out because it was, you know, common and, and making that much money that fast. Like to me, that was like, well, that's, that's the same kind of money that I would have made working eight hours, hanging brakes or ball joints at the dealership here. And, you know, I did it by fixing a wire that cost me 25 cents and I just made, you know, $300 on this car gone the next day like and that kind of drove me to be like okay so you know focus on that right which was because it didn't interest me like i couldn't remember if it was a three-speed or four-speed didn't i didn't care right it was just the fact that it was broke and you know a simple repair to a wire restored everything that it was supposed to do and i thought that was the coolest thing right and i wasn't like i was good at electrical drivability but that was like Okay, this is really where I can see the money being, you know. So, I mean, that was the yeah. first light bulb moment for me. That okay, Jeff, you know, you kind of have a knack for this. I think I don't know if I had one of those moments on a car until I was probably working in a shop. You know, I think I had really good instincts and I got away with it, a lot of stuff for a long time. I'm there with you for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Like I was in. A thousand percent. Even in high school, somebody's car wouldn't start. You know, they started up, maybe started to pull out of a parking lot and it died. And then it was, oh, they couldn't get it started. And I really had no idea what I was doing. But for some reason, it's like, I think it flooded. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, in the mid 90s, uh, a lot of kids were still driving cars with carburetors because that's what you could afford. Yep. And, uh, you know, I just, I would know to pry open and hold open the uh, choke and maybe hold the throttle wide open to clear it out and it'd get going again. And everyone thought like, oh, wow, you must really know what you're doing. It's like, I don't know why I knew to do that other than I suppose a chainsaw would flood and I would know what to do or a tractor, gas tractors at the, uh, would have chokes on them, stuff like that. And then, you know, the the whole, the move into the profession was really just to kind of get my parents off my back. 
Because in high school, after high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Right. I mean, just really no idea. You know, kick around the idea of uh, the military and uh, just, I I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to do. But the uh, area, the local college had an automotive program and the instructor had stopped into the high school shop class and kind of put on a little bit of a presentation. And part of his presentation was to kind of wow everybody with what all these parts are on a car you know the electronic stuff and he would hold them up and i got all of them right except for a cam sensor Mm -hmm. but i got all these other ones right because a some of the tractors already had some of the stuff and b the vehicles for the implemented you know tow the trailers and uh deliver equipment or pick it up had this stuff and we serviced the uh, vehicles up there so i had some familiarity so he goes back to his office and calls my parents, calls my dad right up at the implement and says, hey, you know, your kid, your he's kid. got a bright future in auto repair. And so they're like, wow, you know, you'll never be out of a job. They're always going to need their car fixed. That that would be a pretty good gig, kid. Yep. And I wanted to fix chainsaws because it was easy. Mm-hmm. And the local, or not local, the regional still rep, calls me up at home his name was jim i'll never forget it and he's like i i really like you and i think you do really well for five years mm-hmm. and then you'd go broke because the the writing was on the wall already you know when i first started going up there hanging out you could pretty much buy a part for a chainsaw regardless of age yeah. If it was one of the very first ones built, you could probably still find a part for it. But the newer ones coming out, that wasn't the case. They're designing in, uh, designed or what do they call that? Predicted obsolescence or something like that. Where Obsolescence, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're engineering obsolescence and that it's going to be obsolete. You won't be able to buy parts. And even at that, like the the... The consumer model saw is that you that's what you sell the most of. It's getting to the point where it's too expensive to fix. If you can buy a new steel chainsaw, because all you really do is some limbing and maybe a storm goes through and you got a few branches to cut up. Yeah. You don't need a big lumberjack big saw, big pro saw. A couple hundred bucks gets you a steel chainsaw and will do anything and everything you need it to do. However, now if that thing breaks, depending on what, you can hardly afford to fix it. Mm-hmm. You can just buy a new one. And the profit margins on the new ones are pathetic. You know, my dad and I figured out if you spent more than about 10 minutes with somebody on a chainsaw, you lost money. Wow. So we we're losing money if we we're acting as good salespeople on a s- smaller consumer size, consumer saw. You know, you start to get into the bigger stuff. You know, probably anything over like three cubes or whatever, you know, 50, 55 cc's, then the prices go up enough and the margins enough to maybe spend a little bit of time, but nothing like the pro stuff, but there's not that many. The the pros are the loggers. They show up, they know what they want. You know, there's two saws to choose from. There's the small limbing saw that's light and fast, and then there's the big one for felling. And that's what they bought. And they already knew what they wanted. They walk in and say, I need a new saw. You need the big one or the small one. And then 28, that's kind of, we see that similar thinking in our industry still to this day. Right. And I I, like being so much of my background is in the dealership, right? Like I, I never got into the, what's a margin on a neon versus a margin on a town and country versus a margin on a Durango. Right. I didn't care. I, I knew the type of customer, what they were like for each one. Right. 
but it's so, you know, I, it's funny when you, we all want to reminisce about the glory days of when you just kind of went out and lifted the hood and, you know, tweaked the tar- carburetor and, you know, plugged the ignition wire back in and it smoothed right out and they handed you, you know, five bucks or something and they were happy as could be. And, and now we look at it and it's like, okay, we know what the margin's going to be from the time when that car comes in, right? What it can be. And if you spend too much time doing this and too much time doing that, and I understand that it's a necessary evil of this business, but I mean, I can see why people still reminisce so much about the old days, right? Where it wasn't, even if the margin was not great, you still spent the time doing just being a good person, doing what the right thing to do, you know? I wish some of that could come back, but I'm I'm scared that it's not gonna. Because I mean, I, I I can remember lots of customers that I spent 20, 30 minutes after their repair going through with them because you know they didn't understand why their guy had said it needed X, Y, and Z, right? And I fix it with a broken wire or something like that, right? And yeah. they want to understand, and you know, I'm not getting paid for that 30 minutes, right? Like I've done the repair it was flat rate at the dealer like i had some really good advisors that knew what i could do and they they'd let me do it and they i don't want to say that the advisors looked after me but i mean they kind of right I, I would help them out with things and they would help me out with things and so it's never a situation of you know that i couldn't talk to customers or i didn't enjoy it it's just you know, you know how it is, right? The one customer can be just absolutely awesome. And the next five can be that nightmare. You know, they've already judged you before you ever even have opened your mouth. And it's those kind of people. I just, that's so old and archaic. I, I can't even, I can't even stomach it. Right. I just don't do it. And it's tough. So people look at me and they're like, don't let him talk to customers. And then I'll have two customers come in. Like I had last week, they were, they were moving from, I'm in Ontario they were moving out of province, had to buy a car that day. And uh, they're like, you know, so they bring a car over from the local dealer and I don't even rack it. I'm like, what is it? Oh, it's a Nissan Juke? No, don't buy that. <laughs> and they're like, why? I'm like, because it's going to have a transmission problem probably when I drive it. Um, I said, it's one of their lowest selling. We're talking like a three or four year old Juke just out of warranty. I said, it's, they didn't sell a lot of them. The parts are expensive. Their serviceability them was terrible. I wouldn't buy it. I said, and here's not only that, I would probably wouldn't buy any Nissan that's out of warranty from that generation because expect to put a transmission in it within the year. There's a reason that it's traded. It needs a CVT. They all do. <laughs> yeah, just expect it. And um, so they they take it and I drive it real quick. I don't even rack it. I just drive it and I'm like, yep, it's got a transmission issue. The light's not on yet, but you can feel it. If you've driven enough Nissan CVT like me, you know there's something wrong. So they're like, okay. So they go back and they come back with a little Mazda 3. I rack that car, go through everything. Okay, so the factory remote start doesn't work. Make sure you have them fix that before you buy it. Your wheel lock key for this car is missing. Make sure they give you that before it's... Make sure that, you know, there's like five things on the car. It had supposedly been undercoated. Not at a dealer, at a up here, we have what we call crown undercoating. And uh, they had receipts in the glove box, the previous owner for crown. But when you got under the car, you never thought that it had been even sprayed ever. And I said, okay, so when you get to where you're going, they're going to Halifax. Get to your local crown, 
show them the car, show them the receipts, and tell them that you don't think it was sprayed well enough. And if they're going to spray it, have it sprayed heavy. Those two ladies left, and they were literally like, the one lady gave me a hug, and she's like, I wish we'd have found you years ago. And it's because they're just coming in because, like, we could get them in that day for a pre-trip or, like, a pre-safety inspection. You know, normally don't even charge 100 bucks for it, right? It's it's not charged enough as what it should, but it's not necessarily a safety inspection as much as it's just, like, is the car worth buying or not? And they were so happy that we didn't, you know, we essentially looked at two cars for them, but only charged them to look at one. And gave them more knowledge than you could tell anybody in the industry had yet to this point treated them like they weren't just you know a walking checkbook and instead treated them like and we knew they were not going to be future customers because they're already leaving right we could have blown them off matt we could have said oh yeah okay well this is just blah 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 and out the door but the fact that i spent you know 45 minutes going over with them and another 15 minutes talking about what to expect with the car they're going to buy and how to kind of navigate like okay so you know understand that this is not your dad's mazda you know that he had in 2002 this is a 2018 it's very different like you have to appreciate this little thing and that little thing and how the technology makes it so great and they were mine their their minds were just like blown right with how much they'd never had that kind of interaction with somebody that actually genuinely seemed to genuinely care that the buying experience, which I'm not even selling the car, right, Matt, is what was a positive experience. And I came home from that night realizing that, you know, it's not about selling, right? It's about trying to make people understand that this industry is not this cesspool of deceit and just, you know, distrust. There's a lot of people that have really good intentions that, for whatever reason, just they don't get to talk to the customer or it doesn't come out. And then there's a lot of people that are doing just some really shady stuff. But I mean, in the middle of us, there's a handful of us that don't get the the accolades that are just doing the right thing every day, right? And it, I didn't get, like, from a flat rate standpoint, would I have been the same way with that customer? No, I can't say that I would have, right? I would have, I would have spent maybe 10 minutes and then I would have been, okay, I got to get back to whatever I'm doing, even if I had nothing to do because you can't get another job, right, if you're yakking. But it is so much better for my, what I feel I have to bring to the industry if I don't work that way. You know what I mean? If it, I don't see everything as just a margin and a financial opportunity. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff going on that's, depending on your perspective, is shady. But the intent isn't necessarily sh- shady, you know, to to be intentionally deceitful it's really incompetence or just ill-equipped whether that is proper tooling training which would be lead to incompetence and sometimes when you say incompetence it's it's so condescending just you're you're basically you're a complete idiot you incompetent but that's all of us have a level of incompetence, right? I mean, you make a bad call because you looked at some data and you decided that this component had to be bad. And it ends up it's not bad or it doesn't fix the car. Well, okay, that would be incompetence. Even if you're a very, very knowledgeable tech that fixes cars that the others can't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
you start throwing on incompetence and people get really, really offended and their feathers get really, really ruffled. And it's, yes, it can be meant to be running people down hard, but sometimes it's just the, the absolute truth. And you have just a large, large, large number of techs and shops out there that are wildly incompetent. And I don't know how serious they are about becoming incompetent. And then add on to that, incapable. Like they don't have the right tools for the job. Mm-hmm. Huge difference. And, right? It's it, right. That's that speaks to me about the motivation of what do they really want to achieve when this is done, right? Like it's one thing to say you just don't know, but you genuinely are invested in trying to do the problem solved. And then the the other side of, of the coin is that I don't really care, right? If if I don't fix everyone as long as whatever the numbers line up at the end of the month and we get to keep the lights on. You know what I mean? And I, it, it's, it's, that's the tightrope to walk, right? Is how do you, how do you do them both? Cause no, but none of us are perfect. Not one of us that no. there's just like, you know, Keith was mentioned in the last couple weeks ago, every shop out there, I don't care who their name is. The top people in the industry have got a shelf with some parts on it that didn't fix the car yep, yep. Right? and they didn't leave them in the car most of the time. Right. And the customers certainly didn't pay for them because that's the right thing to do. Paul Danner talks about it all the time, but you know, to the customer, uh, you alluded to how it can go out of there with, you know, an ignition module, a set of wires, a tune up and a fuel system cleaning and it's fixed. And the customer paid a thousand dollars and is happy. But really what it needed was just the coil and, and they paid $80 for the coil in 15 minutes. And they're like, they can't believe that, you know, that's, that's no way it can be that right. Why? Or even worse, it's a broken wire to, you know, a coil and you know, well, why can it only be that that's, and you charge me, you charge me a hundred dollars to find that wire and fix it. You guys are ripping, ripping me off. Yeah. And this will sound like I'm trying to run a dealer into the ground and, and I'm really not. I, but this is the reality is uh, a customer had a, I don't, I won't even say the name uh, brand cause it really doesn't matter, but it had all, you know, the Christmas tree mm-hmm. lights on in the uh, instrument cluster. So they take it to the dealer, the local dealer and thousands of dollars later, it's still not fixed. It still has this Christmas tree of lights on and, Wherever they were, somehow, some way, they get my name. Doesn't matter, but it ends up at our shop. They purposely didn't bring it to our shop to begin with because they had heard we're really expensive, <laughs> like as expensive as the dealer or more expensive than the dealer. Yep. So I lucked out. I mean, I don't know if it was lucked out. It's just it was a network issue. I had a whole bunch of modules not communicating, and you probably know what brand it is when I tell you the issue was the terminal tension at a connector and it basically took out maybe not half the network it's probably a little bit of an exaggeration but it took down a large number uh, of modules on the network it's quite kind of amazing it actually ran right but two new terminals i don't think it probably needed any of those modules and there you sit that dealer soaked that customer for thousands thousands of dollars did not fix the car. And I spent, we'll just say the better part of two hours to find it and fix it. Cause I don't want to, 
I don't want to make it sound like I was a superstar. It's just, it wasn't that hard to find, especially, you know, I guess I'll put over auto a little bit, the module topography mm-hmm. on the MS series. I mean, the Maxis series, uh, that helps a lot. When you can see these modules on this bus after about here aren't talking and then a wiring schematic, you kind of have an idea where to go. Yeah. Right. So it's not like, you know, Matt was so freaking smart. It's just experience doing that uh, training and lots of training and that lots of friends. Yeah. That always irked me when people would be, when they come to me and they lambast about the, Oh, it's been at the dealer and, and you know, they can't fix it. Or you've, you've seen me get right angry with people. It's like dealer techs can't fix anything or dealer techs of this or dealer techs of that. And, I still, I get really still offended because, because of my core, you know, I spent so many years at so many different dealerships, right? And I know that there's a lot of us in the dealers that genuinely want to see the car fixed, right? We genuinely, oh yeah, but we're not given enough diag time. The guys at the dealer are not, it, it's a completely different environment, right? And I used to say yeah. all the time, if you've never worked it, you don't understand it. You don't know what the pressure is like where you can have a service manager that's watching the oil changes back up and he needs to get them in the shop. And he could have, you know, two one tech on a transmission job, one tech on an engine job, one tech on a diag, and they're going to stop them to go do something absolutely asinine that makes them nothing anyway. And, and he just took the progress chain or train and drove it right off the tracks. It's done. You know, your, your train of thought is screwed for the next hour. So I've always felt that there's a lot more text that get shade thrown at them. And it's not that they can't fix it because everybody that knows me a long time has said, I will not invest my own time for free into a customer's repair. I will not do it. It is against my core value, right? If, if now, if I make a judgment and it's wrong, I spent many nights at the dealer till eight or nine o'clock fixing a car that I screwed up my diagon and I couldn't let it go. And I was like, I got, I got to know. I worked a lot of hours for free till I learned it right till I fixed it. Cause I didn't want to be just the typical, right? The stereotype. But so when people start to say this kind of tech can't do this and this kind of tech is better, there is no way you can know right? You have to look at the shop's culture, how they pay. And so I believe that there's a lot of techs in a dealership that are genuinely really good and can fix the car. It's just where some shops take the problem car in. They have a rapport with the customer. They spend three, four hours on it to get to the problem. They give the customer a bill for maybe two hours. The labor rate is a lot lower. The customer gets you know a $200 bill, one broken wire fixed, one terminal tension problem corrected whatever and to them you are incredible right at the dealership their door rate could be 50 percent higher the tech is flat rate right it's always well they've authorized an hour i don't want to call them again for another hour right it's always you're at two hours you still don't know oh man like I, i you know we're we're backing up with work here and i don't think i can call them again for hour three do you see what I mean, Matt? Like we know the difference because we both work both sides of it. That the one scenario just leads to a much more trusting transaction, right? Where the the dealer always has yeah, their prices are what they are, their overhead is what it is, 
But there's so many times that they're scared to say to the customer, listen, we need more more time. And then, and then time is one thing, right? If you don't necessarily have the tech to be able to put on that problem, you might rethink about should you even bring that car in? It's like the the thread that went around last week where the guy was talking about, oh, what was it? The ABS fault. And they had to bring in a field service tech in to fix it. And that, that always really just irritated me when people, you know, start to talk about how those dealership mechanics can't fix anything. Because, I mean, I have always said, if I got paid some of the time that I've seen, if I had some of the time allotted that I've seen some cars get towed out of shops and get brought to me at the dealer to fix, I, I could have fixed anything. You know what I mean? And it was, it's, it's about at that point, it's how do we invest the customer's money the best way? So, you know, I, I believe that, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to find somebody like yourself, Matt, that's so skilled or the superstars of the industry. We talk about them, right? The guys that can do anything, Brendan Stecklers and Brian and Paul and, you know, those guys that are known for, for problem solving. Right. But I believe that more of us out here, I guess I should, I pose that question. What do you think? Like, do you think that there are more of them out there that can do it? Or do you really think that it's, it's gotten to where it's going to be just, kind of, I don't want to say elite status or elite ability, but what do you think about it? I I think it's a small percentage of people because, I mean, everybody I know that you would call that elite level, whatever that means. But I think we know when we say that, we kind of know who we're talking about. And you hate to start naming names just because you're going to start forgetting those names, forgetting people that very much deserve somebody in that group. But you know, the Justin Morgans and the Pedro Della Torres yeah. and the Keith Perkins, you know, and we could go on and on and on, right? This, this yeah. massive friends group. And of course they're smart. They have to be smart to a certain degree. But the biggest thing is like the personal mm-hmm. investment they have is tremendous. And I think that's the difference is they put, so yes, they have to have the brains, right? He, you could study chess as long as you want, but if you don't have a certain intelligence or intelligence type, you're only going to go so far. You're only going to yep. get so good. Somebody else that's kind of got a little bit more of a knack for it, it, you know, they just certain concepts occur to them more naturally and make sense to them on a, a level that yeah. doesn't make sense to you they put forth that same amount of effort, they're going to be way mm-hmm. better than you. And I think that's the same case here is like, whatever it is, not so much the intelligence number, you know, their, their IQ is this, it's not so much that as much as their intelligence is really strong in certain areas of mechanical aptitude and, you know, maybe certain like cognitive reasoning and spatial recognition types of stuff that they're very adept at. And then putting in hours and hours and hours of study, Mm -hmm. uh, networking. Uh, You know, I like when Keith was talking about uh, when he was working for a shop, like he would stay after work every night to work on cars or cars that were still there that he had to figure it out. He'd go back through and how, how could I have figured this out faster or what could I have done different? You know, even to the point of bolting on the old bad parts to yep. try to re-diagnose yep. it. That's a, that's a terrific level of dedication that 
Most I don't know. Do I? That. I never had it because work. when I was at when I would get there, and it was like you were at it, you were there at the dealer at eight o'clock, right? And the salespeople were still walking around, but you're there fixing the car. At that point, it was just about fixing the car, right? You know what I mean? It wasn't a learning. It wasn't a learning opportunity. I mean, it was a learning opportunity. I learned a ton, but it wasn't at that point. It was just like I need to get this car done because I'm behind this many jobs or this many hours, and I don't really. Yeah, I, I know to check there next time, but you know what I mean? I didn't develop a process improvement through that learning ex- expertise. I just got my butt handed to me. It got chewed. Um, I had to make it up on the next cars, right? I had to get the work done. I had to get a paycheck. And I think that that's, um, that has hindered my career, that mindset that, you know, I don't ever think, put the old part back in and look at it. And and, and I, I've, I've mentioned it, you know, the last one I had was a Mazda that was a, a pretty interesting thing. And, a, you know, I, I I can't remember who I shared it with about what was going on. I ended up having a, a skewed reading to the fuel tank pressure sensor through a connection underneath the trunk was causing the mass airflow to be all wonky. The oxygen sensor was an open loop. It would barely run, barely shift. It was all kinds of screwed up. All because of this connector at the back is full of green corrosion and, and it was water. Like you could pull the connector apart and pour water out of it. And, um, you know, so it ended up being that we just literally put a pigtail in. That's all it needed to fix. That's it. And it's like, so I had a few hours into it and I got it done. You know, cheap repair for the customer other than labor. No, no major parts, you know. And, and I'm done but we're already a day behind when we had promised it. Cause they, you know, they figured it's just a mass airflow and it would have been out the door. We didn't put a mass airflow and we didn't shotgun a part in this, but because of that being there a day longer, you're being, Oh, they need it back right away. Right. So I didn't even have the time to go back and kind of stick the old pigtail back in, recreate the failure and start to document everything. And I wish I did, but you know, there's always that get the car done mentality. Yeah, and I, I don't know that that can be stressed enough. That going back to the uh, vehicle issue that was at the dealer that they put a lot of parts on it. There seems to be that misnomer of the dealer, like you guys have access to training we don't. You have access to information we don't. And a lot of times yeah. it's the opposite. In some cases, it's worse. You have less information at your fingertips. Like the service sure. information is the same. You know, looking up wiring diagrams and stuff like that. Like training, sometimes the training documents are worse than what we get in the aftermarket. This is this is what was interpreted or given to us by the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. This is all you need to know. And the we car want sets codes. To- you follow this trouble tree. Do what you're told, and you'll fix the car. And that's the mentality. And that's there's no scopes. And if there are scopes, they don't really give you no. enough time to use them, anyways. No. Uh, there's no cool tools for, you know, a network analysis or, you know, whatever. We, we could go down a rabbit hole with that, but it's just this misunderstanding like that they have, that you guys, the dealer techs have such access that we don't. And a lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times we have more information about the fundamental operation of these systems exactly. than they do. And we're in a a different environment too, right? Because we're probably not getting mm-hmm. two tenths to diagnose. You know, if it had taken me all day to figure that yep. truck out, I would have got paid. I would have got paid for the day. 
and we would have built what we thought we could have built for. And part of my point too with that scenario was, or example, wasn't so much like I fixed something the dealer couldn't. It was pers- mm-hmm. it was perspective, because that bill ended up being maybe three hundred dollars. The customer was ecstatic with us and ticked off at the dealer. But if they would have came to us first and it was the same exact thing, but no other parts were put on it, and I find these wires, uh, or not these terminal tension issues, and I fixed the car for $300, they're livid with me because it was $300 for these two little terminals. We're gouging you, or, or, or they're, you're gouging How us. You? How dare you? So it, that was kind of the whole point of that is this perspective thing. Uh, and yeah. And, and then, and then like I was saying, my instincts too, is I went to the two year college basically to get my parents off my back. I saw a scan tool the first day on the tour of the shop. And then I was, I was whipped. Like, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. What does that do? And the technology stuff kind of sucked me in. And, And that my first job when I was going to, School was at a Ford dealer, uh, kind of new car prep, and then they would let me do some other stuff. And one of the things was I got to assemble the uh, SBDS, which was the their kind of their big ah, what do you want to call it? It was a diagnostic system. It kind of worked. It would it would had a, harnesses. Not that there were so many different ones for Ford, but um, it would tee into the uh, harness between yeah. the engine control module and the the rest of the vehicle the wire harness. And it could do pin by pin analysis and it had lab scope functions and kind of almost like guided fault finding in mm-hmm. a in a way. You could do fuel pressure tests where you would hook up the transducer and it would measure the fuel pressure and tell you if it was good. And it would t- have you wait for, you know, a minute or whatever to watch bleed down. And if it didn't pass that, it recommended uh, right. fuel pumps, stuff yeah. like that. And uh, there's a flight record function, stuff like that. So anyways, once in a while, they'd throw me a car to work on uh, other than prepping. And this thing had a kind of a, uh, what would they call that? I don't, because I don't want to give it away necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, like a fish bite. Yeah. I think that's what they called it. And the service manager told me like, well, it's probably the transmission and here change the transmission fluid and put a little bit of this limited slip stuff in the transmission fluid because it's probably the torque converter uh solen or not solenoid but the uh torque converter clutch so i did it stuff stinks like you wouldn't believe but i do Mm -hmm. it go out does the same thing and he's kind of like well you know it's getting to the end of the day the other guys aren't going to take it on so you know mess around with it whatever and uh you know, I drove it, I had it on the SBDS, I was looking at ignition, and I had no idea what I was looking at. And the thing doesn't give you ignition waveforms, it was bar graphs, which turns mm-hmm. out was like worthless. But I just had this gut feeling like this is ignition. This this is a misfire and it was mm-hmm. plug wires. And uh so I went and parts department gave me the this was back when you could do like <laughs> ask for the parts and they would give them to you and you could yeah. try them out and if they didn't work give them back and uh i put the plug wires on and i i could see i think it was number five cylinder on a four six liter the i could see where mm-hmm. it's burned through the boot and uh so put that on fix the car and they're kind of like holy cow and don't get me wrong there's a lot of stuff that i stunk <laughs> up the joint terrible <laughs> terrible yeah 
and so they in retrospect i was trying to figure out like was that a good environment or a bad environment and i think fun when really boiled down to it it was a bad environment but it led to it led to the job that so i delivered parts for a little while at car quest which ended up being really good for me because it kind of gave me time to process stuff that i had learned in school learned watching at the dealership got my butt mm-hmm. handed to me at the dealership got to watch other mechanics kind of work form relationships with them banter and then uh they wanted me to go full-time parts at car quest and i just I, don't, I couldn't do it uh, i wanted to finish up school i really didn't picture myself being a counterman or anything like that not that there's anything wrong with that so I ended up at Tires Plus for a little while, which is tires and brakes and alignments, and I hated every second of it. I don't know why I took the job. It was probably the most money I'd made for quite a while, even when I went to the uh, the next shop. But that's the next shop after that was, was Preeb's Repair. It was an independent repair shop. The owner had a really, really good reputation as being a really good mechanic, and he found out I liked electrical and drivability and all that, and that's all I wanted to do. And I got there and he's like, you can have it. And they let me struggle. They let me ride the struggle bus a lot. And um, yeah, and I'm torn about that, right? Because for me, it worked out really well. But, you know, I would get there at eight o'clock in the morning and I would stay until 10, 11 at night. And I would just keep fighting and fighting and learning and pouring through manuals, pouring through trade regs. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of training just yet. I had fought for that uh, to get some sort of training but one of those magazines was underhood service and john thornton had a column in there every other month he'd share it with somebody else and i would read these articles and they just blow my mind and it was between that and the the third year of uh technical school i went to that changed everything that that changed everything so i'd be on the struggle bus all the time right out of my two year and then after that third year i that's that was probably probably like the light bulb moment was up there coming back to the shop and being able to run out of work like before they might only schedule me a couple cars a day three cars a day and then when i came back they had a hard time keeping me busy substantially faster time yeah stuff that was tripping me up before wasn't tripping me up anymore and the it part of it was the schooling the schooling helped with electrical immensely i like i don't know what it was i think it was kind of the hands-on portion i think it was just the way they taught it was a Mm -hmm. lot more hard-nosed um a lot more probably reminiscent of how my dad was with me just kind of like come on use your brain think about it nope you're not right just go go over there go work it out think about it come back later and for whatever reason that works for me that worked for me and then um yeah coming back and be able to knock that stuff out that was probably my light bulb moment it was when you know these these cars that used to just kill me weren't weren't killing me anymore there was definitely cars that would kill me but they were usually just totally jacked up or it was hard to be overly critical of myself on yeah because they were probably can we can we say that they were maybe not much longer for the for the motoring world and they probably should have been retired as a piece of transportation yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. i worked on a i i still work on too many of them but i mean it's getting better now so yeah but i wrestle with the whole thing about you know how long do you let somebody struggle 
and how important was it and how to recognize this investment like that they're struggling now but i can see they don't make the same mistake twice or i can see that they're staying late or they're going home and they're spending a lot of their own time studying and trying to get better you know it's around that time i mm-hmm. i found iatn and that you talk about like aha moments like there's aha moments yep. up at the implement and then the big a big aha moment happened up at that third year of college it was alexandria technical college they don't have the program in there anymore but it was third year you had to graduate a second a two year sorry you had to graduate a two year just to get in and all it was was electrical drivability mm-hmm. on gm ford chrysler they had factory scan tools i'd never used a factory scan tool before i didn't know what i was missing and then I saw, and it's like, oh my, you know, and that had to use lab scopes. You know, you had to use the lab scope. It just opened yep. up so much. It just so many aha moments, so many just, I don't know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Like, so you kind of, oh, did you kind of get involved on IATN with like, I mean, I I know some of the people that you, you I don't want to say aligned yourself with, but I mean, they kind of maybe mentored you or saw something in you that was like, okay, this, this young man's, you know, got a bright future. Did you immediately just kind of go in and start to, cause I know when I was there, I, I lurked, I didn't hardly say anything. I mostly hung out in like the, you know, back here. You remember it when it was like, if it was a Chevrolet or a Ford or a Chrysler, you know, tech topics. Right. And I would just read that all night long. And then if yep. I saw one that I thought I knew the answer for, I would just say, hey, you know, I've, I've seen when they go out of time, they do this. And uh, but I never like the the in-depth stuff that I saw, you know, Harvey discuss like Harvey Chan and, and you know, Albin Moore and so many other people like John Thornton, you know, guys that were talking a lot. I just read. I didn't say anything. I just read. And um, I remember seeing you and Harvey discussing different things in there, and I was like, okay. And what's, what was cool is Harvey was Canadian, right? So, I mean, you know, he's – Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, And I was Vancouver. like – Because it wasn't like he was the only Canadian on IETN, but, I mean, there was not a lot of us, right? Um, and certainly that didn't hold the, the esteem that they had for Harvey, right? And I remember seeing those, like, Harvey Chan – you know, Canadian tire store number, whatever it was in Vancouver. And I'm thinking Canadian tire, like, cause they do not have the best reputation in, in up here in Canada, in our industry, not even close. They are the biggest player on the block by <laughs> double to any, the next closest might be Midas and they wouldn't even, Midas wouldn't even be a blip on their radar, right? In terms of store account. And I remember thinking, wow, if they've got a guy like Harv, that understands that level. And I remember he was like, when I would see him, he would talk about hybrid and and stuff like this. Right. And it's in its early days. And I'm thinking there's a guy, a Canadian tire that actually like knows as much about the Toyota EV or back then the Prius as a Toyota tech would. That's amazing to me. Right. And I just, you know, I would see you guys discussing different things, and I'm like, you know, man, if if every store had a Harvey, right, what an amazing, like they were already a huge player, they'd have put everybody else out of business. 
the level that he had that he just showed through those few posts that I I, I can remember astounded me. It was incredible, right? It, it, yeah, I mean, he was a Snap-on yeah. beta tester. And uh, yeah. he was a flat rate tech. I mean, he was a flat rate tech for the longest time. Some diag, but just the typical Canadian tire work. That's what he did. And he had a knack for the diagnostic stuff. So they would give him a little bit more. And they, I think they took care of him, uh, A, because he was pretty good at it. B, I think he was just a good guy to have in the shop. He yeah. got along with everybody. And, um, and I think IATN helped show him, too. And this would have been slightly, be- slightly before me what else was really out there and gave him an avenue to find more information. And then the guy was, I mean, he's the smartest mm-hmm. person as I've ever met. I mean, he is as smart a person as I've ever met and could retain unbelievable amounts of uh, information. But better yet, he was really good at just, I think it's like that spatial reasoning and and that he could think about stuff and think about it and it would make sense. And uh, and then he was pretty good at like sharing that. But his way of doing it Mm -hmm. a lot of times was setting you up. He'd ask you a question and it just yeah. he'd be setting you up the whole time. Uh, when I first joined IATN, probably it would have been well, I mean, it would have been mid, really well, late nineties so for a long, yeah. And yeah, and when I first joined up, I mean, I read some of the forums, but I found mm-hmm. the chat room, and um, I think I was liked, but not generally liked well by the people I would end up looking up to the most because i think i was very ah what's the i mean is laissez-faire the right word i mean it's just or phrase it's we're here to help everyone out and it, it was just like really after this wholesome type of atmosphere and they mm-hmm. were a little more hardened and so i ended up i would butt heads really hard with the mac Matthew yes, I remember that. and Harvey a little bit and TL, Tim Lena, uh, who else? John Luttenberger and I would go at it a lot. Oh my God. And it was probably that way for a few years. And then one night, I, it was specifically one night, I remember everything, mm-hmm. everything changed. I was desperately trying to help this guy figure out this. Um, it was a Ford pickup that was misfiring on one bank under acceleration. And I knew what was wrong with the truck, but I was trying to help him figure it out on his own. And he went on a tirade about what an a-hole I was, that I would, I knew what was wrong with that truck and I wouldn't just tell him. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just realization that I I ended up writing these really long response after that guy got uh, booted. So Lloyd Jones was a moderator. He booted the guy. And I just remember writing this really long, it's not a post, it's in chat, but this response, basically apologizing profusely to Harvey, Ragsdale, Burnclaw, Kemper, Tim Lena, John Lottenberger, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few others, that they were a little, they would help you, but you had to jump through their hoops. And I apologized profusely to them because it didn't make sense until that night. And that changed everything. That changed everything. All of a sudden, it's a whole nother new world opened up. Yeah. Riggle, John Riggle was another one. And uh, I just remember, not that they're all of a sudden so much nicer to me, but I took everything they did much differently. 
I didn't take it so personally. I don't think they treated me any better. They maybe even treated me quote unquote worse, but I didn't take it. it You've made it past the hazing phase, right? And you're now kind of into the, you know, you're now into the, you're still the, the young kick around kid on the team, but at least you're on the team. You know what I mean? We're going to let you. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of saw stuff from their perspective. Like it all of a sudden just made sense. Like, Oh, Mm. that's okay. Yeah. That's what I, I was, that's what I was doing. I always oh, tried wow. to do, okay. cause you know, me, my history in, in the Facebook groups is I always tried to try and bring what, what IATN had been about into a Facebook groups. And I've realized now that it, it is never going to be, it was, IATN was a very special thing and it was, you know, it, it's not what it used to be and it's never going to be that again. We'll probably in this industry never have anything exactly like that again, because I didn't want yeah, because you had the best of the best seeking each other out. The the guys who we were talking about just earlier, where you get done with work and you went home, and then you spent your time on work to get better, and that was the place. And for a while, it was really the criminal de la, criminal de creme. I mean, the cream of the crop. They were. And the I best just of always wanted to see people like because I, I believe in that. You know, if you teach a man to fish, versus if you you know he can. If you teach a man to fish, he can feed himself, right? If you give a man a fish, you feed him for one day. And and that's what I always just tried to bring is it's like, and dude, I've been lit up, you know, more times than I can count. People have just been infuriated with me. Why don't you just give them the answer? Well, it's not identifix, right? Like, first of all, we're all here out of our own volunteer. Right. We're not getting paid for this. So if I have the answer, I want you to understand how I got it, right? And I might have just got it by some fluke thing. Or maybe there was a process to how I got the answer, but it's more important that I share the process than I share the answer, right? That's what I always try to get. And no, it just, this, the newer generation just does not care. They just, and I get it where they're coming from. They just want that nightmare car fixed and gone. Totally understand it. But we, Brian and I talk, Brian Pollock, all the time about you know it takes a process we have to refine our process of how we do it i i core my core belief is that if we refine the process on how we do this job this industry then changes 1000 percent. i think that's what it's going to take and it's it is it's it's a slog man to try and get everybody to to because we all are different right we all do things different your brain works different than mine my brain works different than brian's then paul's then brendan's and keith's and it's just matthew scundrich like there's another cat that's like he's on another level of how when you talk to him and you know he's not above calling me and asking me like hey have you had one of these when i was at nissan you know i'm working on a brand new car he's working on a brand new car and i'm like matt like i've only been here two months dude you're you're already ahead of me (laughs) and my your experience on this like i can't help you but it's been fascinating to me to see how many, the different ways that people approach the job and they approach Diag, And it's like, Oh, if so many guys are so much better than me and it's just like, I try to take little nuances of what they do. And, and, but I realize that like all of us are all really good. It's just, you know, some people, it's like you said, it goes back to instincts. People go to me and they go, Oh, you're one of the smartest guys. You know, I've talked to them like, man, I just have the most incredible luck. And then I have, I've been doing this a long time now. So I have a lot of experience on what stuff feels like, 
And then I, I just have a really good, you know, honed intuition, right? I can kind of drive it and go, it's not that, right? Like I, it's, do I know what it is? No, but I know that it's not what you think it is. So it's not your transmission. It's your, you know, you do have a misfire or you're got a, you know, you've got a converter that's plugging up, right? Or something like that, or the timings that you can tell by driving it. And that for me, I don't end up always get to take that car and see what's actually wrong because as soon as it's not going to be fixed with a tune-up, a lot of it, the customer's like, okay, well then we're going to, we were going to get trade this thing anyway. And you flog it. Right. And that can get frustrating, but I got to remember that it's like, I didn't waste a ton of their money doing a tune-up just because they wanted it. Right. They come in and ask for a tune-up and do a tune-up on this. I still, to this day, don't do that. If the customer comes in and wants a tune-up, I go, why do you want a tune-up? Oh, you've got a, it's down on power. Okay. That's probably not going to fix it. Right. Like let's, you know, let's spend some time and try to figure out what it's actually doing. Let's look at some trims and let's look at some codes and, and go on from there. And financially, that's not always been the best method. And I can still see shops now where they struggle with that. Right. Because it's like, I don't want you to do diag. I just want you to fix my car. (laughs) oh man and you're looking at him like do you hear yourself (laughs) i can remember my stepdad's parents so uh, for all intents and purposes grandparents mine they had an old crown vic Uh, i want to say around it probably might have been 96 97 98 somewhere around there 4.6 right and I can remember that it was it was having this issue where it would go, it would stall out, lack of power, and everything else. And um, this is there from a rural community, farmers in the family, and they would go in and say, "Okay, uh, this Crown Vic, it needs a fuel pump. Put a fuel pump in it." And the dealer back there uh, puts a fuel pump in it, and it was an intermittent acting up thing. It didn't fix it. And then they went in, and he's like, "Well, they had another look at it." Um, I had them change both upstream oxygen sensors. It didn't, didn't fix it. So this went on for like months, Matt. Finally, he, we're talking at Christmas time or something like, so did you get the link, the car fix? Yeah. Took it into one day and they changed the ignition coil. And I'm like, and it, that is, so we're talking something that I remember from 25 years ago. And I, that's sticking in my head going, oh, you could have put a coil in for so much less money <laughs> than, than what, you paid to have a fuel pump done. And I don't know the whole scenario, like, you know, what they would have charged or whatever, but I know that that dealership, if they had come to them, that customer and said, I want my fuel pump changed, they'd have done exactly what the customer said. And it, this is the thing that I struggle with sometimes. And it's like, even when I work with other managers sometimes, is that they don't get it is that like, I'm not interested in doing something when I know it's not going to fix the car that's going to leave people jilted and upset because I know, sure as the sun's going to come up tomorrow, they're going to be back in, in your service drive. I'm going to be back up here in front of them, and they're going to be now upset. And I don't want that. So I got labeled a lot of times. I think a lot of us in this industry do when we say, that's not going to fix it. I don't want to do it. Well, that's a bad attitude. What's wrong with you? Why am I paying you? But yeah. we have the best, like, it's not that we don't have the customer's best intentions at mine, you know, but when I think about, for instance, like that, that post last week about that Volkswagen, that, that guy, you know, he fixed the oil consumption problem with a set of spark plugs. He didn't fix anything. Right. But you know, that tech in that dealership is doing their due diligence. They're doing what they're supposed to. They're letting the customer know, yeah, this thing's got a problem. 
the customer doesn't want to hear that. So the customer then has to lambast us all like we're a bunch of thieving crooks. I've always been that type where I would tell that customer, you know what? You go pound sand. I'm not going down this rabbit hole with you because I don't feel good about it. Do I need to make the hour that that tune-up's going to pay? And then no, I don't. Right? Not if it's going to mean that when you're back in six months' time and it's doing it again, or foul up the plugs in here, call me everything under the sun. I'd rather you call me lazy. I'd rather you call me difficult than you call me a crook. I'm not interested in that conversation anymore. Right? So it's, I struggle with that still. It's so, I don't know if I'll ever get out from underneath it. Right? It just drives me crazy. You know, we want genuinely, we all want to do what is right. I believe that 100% as I've started a network with more and more people. And I, I lambasted some people in the day, man, that I was just like, you know, and there are, there are bad apples for sure, but there are more of us out here that want to do the right thing, but it's the circumstances of the culture or whatever you want to call it. That's not allowing us to. And I think until we get that changed in the industry, the future's scary, man. It really is, right? Like, you know, I mean, there's there's guys coming along like Harvey, right? We, we see them. They're young cats that are just brilliant. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't think they have the longevity because I think it's going to get to them. You know what I mean? When we think about some of the people that have been in the industry and have already gotten out, I know of good friends of mine that made the master status. And now they've taken completely different jobs. They're out of the, they're out of the industry. They just can't. They can't survive it, right? It's too. It's not even about the money. It's just the way some days you come home and you're made to feel. It's really hard, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Ragsdale, he's as good a, good a tech, Diag tech, uh, as I've yeah. ever known. And I, I think he works for heavy equipment. And I can now. remember that. And I remember that's his where the name money's at. on IT and all the time. And it was like, that dude's smart. Really smart. Oh, dude. He was super, super, super smart. Either for a, a for real deal photographic memory or darn close in access. He had access that a lot of us mm-hmm. would have killed for. Uh, I mean, I think he went to a really good uh, trade school or technical college and then I think he worked at a Nissan dealer for a while, which ended up, I think, helping him because some of the wording they would use, like base fuel schedule, that was something yeah. I never really heard of. Yeah. But that's a Nissan thing, and that that helped him. And then he ends up with Burnclaw working for uh, Randy Burnclaw's shop, and that guy, you know, Randy's wife, I think, is a chemist, and. He's best friends with Jim Kemper, who worked for the Colorado State Department of Health, and he's an engineer, and he's a genius. So Randy's super smart, maybe, you know, complimentarily meaning a genius. And then I think Kemper legitimately is. I think Burnclaw's wife legitimately is. And they know all about, you know, SAE documents and studying Mm -hmm. patents. And they have the equipment investments. They also have access to the Colorado State Department of Health facilities. I mean, man, that, you talk about a perfect scenario for creating a uh, just a, a juggernaut mm-hmm. of a, a technician. That there it is. I mean, you, it hits on so many things. His just his own unique personal skills and attributes, and then the 
the environment and culture he worked in. It's just, wow, no wonder. And then his reward is there's more money in fixing Mm -hmm. heavy equipment. And I'm sure he's freaking brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant at it. Um, Another one, like a friend of mine, uh, he's, he was a Napa automotive technician of the year. I think ASE technician of the year, Tom Myers worked for independent shops in Chicago He'd have to buy his own uniforms or at least rent them. And I'm pretty sure he's flat rate and all that. Never had a retirement. I don't think he had health insurance, but he may not have needed it because his wife had it. But still, I don't think it was ever offered. And uh, he ends up moving more out east from Chicago. And he's working for a shop out there. And it's kind of all the same. Same type of deal. Winning a national award. Is one of the top in your industry recognized, you know, for your ability to do what it is, repair the automobile well, not just get it cobbled back together, but actually fix it well, like dealer level repair, right? Or above that. And you're working for somebody that you've got to supply your own uniforms. Like this. And the industry yes, wonders yes. why it has a retention problem and an attraction problem to the next yeah. generation. And- but he goes, he, you know what he does now? Well, he got a job. So he got went to an interview. I know a friend or a friend of a friend name dropped him. And it's a forklift dealership, multi-stores. I don't know if you would necessarily consider that a franchise or a conglomerate or whatever, but they have multiple dealerships. He gets hired on as a uh, forklift or fork truck technician. And I told him, you'll be running. The, you'll be running. The, oh, you'll yeah. be shop foreman in a year. And he laughs me off, like, yeah, whatever. Be lucky if I figure out how to drive one of these stupid things. Right? But he doesn't have to buy his uniforms. They provide his uniforms. I think they give him yeah. money for boots and he has so they, you know, work the system a little bit. They pay for eyeglasses mm-hmm. if they're safety. But nowadays you can get really nice looking safety glasses that you clip the sides on and Whatever, so they take care of that. I still don't know if he needed the health insurance or took their health insurance, but it, for the first time in his life, he had a four hundred one k. He had never had one before, at least employee or sorry, employer yeah. contributions and stuff like that. So he's digging it, and turns out a lot of these fork trucks have like mm-hmm. Chevy V eight engines in them. So he's immediately fairly comfortable and immediately above everyone else. On how they work, what to do. He's got a picoscope, boom. He calls me up. I don't know. I mean, we talk periodically throughout the year, but he calls me up and he goes, Well, you were wrong. Oh, yeah? He's like, Yeah, uh, I'm shop form and I did it in 11 months. <laughs> so I was off by a month. But now he's the director of like training. So he goes around and trains all their techs at all these different dealers and he takes on all the hard case trucks or, you know, forkless fork trucks and he's killing it. So, yeah, he wins this award, and his reward was we drove him out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. What? You know, and imagine, because I've seen that more than once. I can remember when I when I was trying to get on at the Goodyear plant here, and the Goodyear plant was full of guys that had left automotive to go work in the plant, to fix the machineries that was in the plant, whether it was a stationary, you know, it, it becomes yep. more like millwright work or whatever, but it was just like, they're all old techs and 
you know, isn't it funny when you can go and so you get out of the automotive industry and you say you go to work to equipment or something, right? And there's so many guys that are trainers and you're like, well, what did you do before you got with the company? I was an automotive mechanic. And they say it like it's, well, I was just an automotive yep. mechanic. And immediately our brain thinks of one thing. But when you start to dig into the background and you start to ask them some questions or something, it's like, no, they weren't just the typical mechanic, right? They were the the guy that it never seemed to be that hard for them, right? And and that's why they're training somebody else. And that's yep. this industry, we tend to chew those people up. And then they go somewhere where they get uh, appreciated. And they're trying to bring, you know, the process to, to a different industry, a way of fixing the machine, a way of diagnosing the machine, a way of looking after the fleet, whatever you want to call it. This industry has to stop doing that. We have to stop pushing these guys out just based on, you know, the guy you're speaking of last week, Michael, uh, the flight rate master, like, you know, I hope to have him on and, uh, you know, the, the idea that as we get older and we slow down, our value becomes less to the people that are employing us to me is just the most ridiculous thing you can think about. And I can't, I can't put my head on it where else in anything in life it happens except in sports. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was thinking sports and I suppose like <laughs> modeling. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it's the only other thing I can really think of, you like know, that, like uh, Wayne Gretzky couldn't couldn't lace him up tomorrow. I mean, he could, he could lace him up tomorrow and go out on the skate and on his skates, and and you know, he could put the moves on quite a few of the guys still and go around them. You know what I mean? And, and make it down the ice, but he won't move as fast, right? He won't. His reflexes won't be there. This industry, it's like, oh, you used to turn sixty. Damn it, you're down to forty five. And I pay you what? You're gone. Like, I can't. The wealth of knowledge that we have probably fired out of this industry or drove them out or whatever term you want to use, it must rival anything else. There must be nothing that even comes close to what we have probably done to some of the smartest people in this industry. And I don't care if it's just like, you know, they, they, they worked at a dealer, they only knew that product, right? And, they just got sick of it and they drove them out of there or whatever, or management change. You still took somebody that knew everything that parked on that lot and knew it inside and out, frontwards to backwards, both sides, uh, knew the operating system, knew the common failures, knew how the shortcuts. And you run that guy out of there or girl because of, of a, of a dollar amount. It's so ridiculous that like, I'm not saying that they have to be put on a pedestal and should be allowed to do nothing and produce nothing, but there's like the, the idea that you're training your replacement. I I'm still on the fence about that because you know, I I've mentored a lot of techs and I have taught them a lot, but I'll, I'll come right out and say it. I haven't taught them everything that I know. Right. If I have a fine process, I don't yes. necessarily teach them my process because I have to protect yeah. what I had to donate to get because if I give it away and I saw it happen, you know, I, I've been through it. Everybody, this is all you, you shouldn't, you know, you should be training them. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if you've worked in the same kind of places that I have, because when I started to show them little things, then everybody started to do what I did. 
And then there wasn't as much for me, right? And we're talking about production. We're talking about money. We all have to keep that in mind that, you know, most of us are still going to judge us on what we produce. And yeah, and it's a very military type of a thought process, training somebody, training your um, successor, because you're, if that's going to happen, okay, I suppose on one extreme you died in battle, but the other is you got promoted and somebody trained you to succeed them because they're moving on up this chain or this ladder. They're moving up this ladder. Well, in our most repair shops, if you're kind of one of the main techs, one of the you know main line techs, if you will, where do you get promoted to? There, there, where else is there to go? So you're training someone to be your to succeed you or replace you, if you will, but you're not necessarily getting promoted. Right. Now it doesn't make exactly. sense. So, like, what what I'm doing is, you know, I I need help in my, my area. There's there's too much stuff, too much time I get pulled away on, for lack of a better description, we'll just say mm-hmm. easy diags, that I, you know, I have to do those. So I, I want to train somebody to kind of take take more and more of that stuff off my plate. And if it gets more complex, of course you can, I'll help you out. Or if I have to, I'll take over and you get back to this other, you know, the other stuff. And But while I'm doing that, I'm also trying to learn more and more about other things like you know currently it's a lot of keys immobilizer eprom uh you know i guess i've been doing programming for quite a while but maybe delving into other uh tools scan Mm -hmm. tools car lines and then ados so as i'm moving into that stuff i need somebody to kind of take over what i was doing so i have time to dedicate to that plus i'm in this managerial role like a lot of the marketing stuff's on me and i do not have time to do it if i'm working on marketing stuff guess what i'm doing it yeah i'm sitting at home and yeah my my hourly pay doesn't reflect that you know i don't get to Mm -hmm. stay punched in uh so i gotta hope my ideas work so that the shop profits and i'll see it in a profit sharing check but um, you know the the idea is not. You know, I have a place to migrate towards. I don't think a lot of techs have that. There's nowhere yeah, for them to go. Because I was going to say it's, this is kind of this you know, will be your shop one day, right? Like you're currently an employee, but that's kind of is that not your end goal? Is that it will be yours? I I mean I last okay. time I checked that was the the goal that he. The shop owner bought a different house, so we'll see how that yeah. affects things. Yeah, that's what I did. That same yeah. look and nodding my head. It's like, I wonder. So we'll see. Remember, Matt, we're, listen, you know, if a shop owner wants to buy a boat, we are not supposed to resent them or judge them for the boat that they buy, okay? That's what somebody, is, a, a mutual friend explained that to me. That we're, Like, you know, they've worked really hard to buy that boat. I cannot stress enough how much I sympathize and am happy that they got to buy uh, this house. So they were looking at building a new house, and I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. The prices yeah. they were getting to build this house is like, this made no sense. If you actually go through with this, this is 100% mm-hmm. ego. 
100% ego. There's so many more houses that you could buy that have that are bigger, nicer, on more property than this new house. But I think you're looking for some sort of, I don't even know, pat recognition well, or pat on the back. Their dream house. It's somebody else's dream house. That's how I see, you know, the 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 real estate side of things is like when I see people that are like, I'm, I want to build a house. They want to build their dream house. And I think what is hard for me to wrap my head around is like, when I remember people doing that as I was younger, it was like, they, that was something they started to do almost at retirement age. You know what I mean? Like it was the kids that already yeah. gone to school, started their own careers. And then they kind of took that on as it's like, okay, so our first home, you know, the market went really good. We paid that mortgage off, you know, we've had it paid off 15 years, say, and uh, we'll sell that home. It'll make us a ton of money. And we'll build our dream home now i'm seeing people in their 20s and i don't fault them for it but like they get successful they get some money and they're like okay we're in our you know or 31 and are going to build our dream home that's admirable but man like these dream homes now around here matt our market is like it's two million dollars these homes are building like and they were worth wow. they were worth less than a million eight years ago that same house on that same two products. That's yeah. how the market yeah. has exploded around here, right? Because around here, if you're, we're two hours from Toronto, two hours from Ottawa, right? So there are so many people that have retired from those two cities and have moved this way that it's just shot the market up. So now when I see people around me and it's like, yeah. I'm, we're going to build a dream home, their dream home that they want to build is like waterfront. And, you know, and it's, it's a $2 million endeavor now it might be a good investment but i it's just you know what i mean it, it's a different it's a different attitude yeah. it's i can't yeah i i am legitimately happy for them because the house they lived in they've lived in for like 33 34 years it's paid off it's been paid off for a while the the house itself isn't so bad you know it's a kind of a mm -hmm. victorian-esque uh house to, you know two-story limestone basement they've done a lot of work on it over the years but it's right downtown yeah. not no separation between neighbors you know they're, they have a one one car garage they wouldn't have room to build a two-car garage on their property i think if they wanted to and it's at the bottom of this hill that i'm sure every winter cars go right through their yard okay i'm so i am ex legitimately very happy for them to get out of there and move into something nice. They got a little bit of space now, an outbuilding. She, his wife, for the first time in her life, is going to have an attached garage that she can pull her vehicle into. She's never had that before. So I am mm -hmm. legitimately happy. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm interested to see how it affects other plans so well i keep i, I i'll keep my fingers crossed for you that it you know that it, it pans out for you because i mean i'm interested to see how it affects things with you know transfer of ownership or anything succession planning type stuff yeah. the the thing is is i think a lot of it still is looking for uh validation and you know i gotta be careful how i word this because it, it will come off very self-serving and i wish 
I wasn't talking about my situation because it could be easily misconstrued and I'm looking for validation where the idea isn't so much anything to do with me and everything to do with, and, and I think this happens to a lot of people, whether they own a business or not, but owners, I think owners are particularly guilty. There should be, a, they should be a lot more proud of themselves and take a lot more pride in their success attributed to the contributions of the people that they've put around them. Amen. And a lot of times that isn't so much like, you know, I hired Jeff and he can, man, he can crank out the work. And that's really important. Like that should be a factor, but also, you know what? I hired this guy, I hired this gal, and they had the, these ideas, and I, I went with them. Mm-hmm. And I I just, it kind of blows my mind, the human ego's inability to allow somebody to do that. Like, this idea wasn't mine. I would have never did this. So-and-so, she mm-hmm. you know, kind of gave me her two cents, and I, I wasn't going to do it, and I wasn't going to do it, I wasn't comfortable with it, and then I thought about it, and it's like, oh, what the heck? And it worked. And then we did this and it worked. And we did this and it worked. And then I got more courage and I want him and haw as much. And then, you know, because of that, because of the confidence built up from going with their ideas, I had this idea of my own and it worked. And just, you know, you go back to sports, right? Usually when they're talking to somebody at the end of the game, they're, they're talking about the team effort because that's what it was. Nobody won the game by themselves unless you're, playing tennis mm-hmm. or golf and even at that right you would thank your coaches and trainers and all that but it's it's crazy to me how hard it is sometimes for them uh and i i guess i'll pick on my boss a little bit i think it's hard for him to tell somebody like you know the shop's doing really well we've been doing really well these last 10 years and i got a level with you for 20 years i i wasn't doing it right right and I hired somebody that could be really strong, you know, I, I can phrase stuff quite strongly about what I thought. And I, again, that sounds like I'm trying to really put myself over and I don't necessarily mean it that way. It's more or less that the my success has more to it than just me. And I could do that with myself. I think I've talked about that where it's wherever I am how anyone would ever rate that if you would there's a lot of pure dumb luck involved with me being there or being here and then a lot of other people's efforts to to push me and help me yeah yeah and i think this industry is going through such a change right now it's just like you touched on right i think there's a lot of owners now and i i think we're really going to see it in the next five years where they look back and they go i had 10 really good years at the end and i might have had like 20 where i was not doing it right and they they weren't necessarily you know right and wrong they were just doing what everybody else was doing right but i think what it's driven to now is the fact that there is such a shortage of of tech technicians that it's it's forcing people to really really rethink the game and i i would be lying if i did said that I don't take pleasure in seeing that happen because I do. I, I think we're starting to finally see the value of what somebody like yourself can do or somebody like, you know, we talk about the top guys, what they can bring, you know, and 
speaking about your friend at the in the forklift thing, we don't want to continue to see that happen in this industry, right? So we have to get ahead of that problem. And I think that finally, I don't want to see a whole lot of people, you know, make good money for the last five years that they're in it and realize that like the 15 or 25 or whatever the number is, you know, call it a lifetime before that five years, they didn't do it right. But at least they had five good years, right? At least they saw the change, got ahead of it, left it better than they found it for the next people coming in and, you know, made some money. I, you know, I, I can resonate what your, what your boss is doing because I mean, they've worked really hard, right? It is, this is a, as this, this industry is a grind. You have to embrace the grind and, you know, they want to have something to show when they're thinking about the retirement of like, this is, this is what we, this is what all our hard work got us. You know, I have my dream home. This is what we have. And, but you know, I don't want to say that, well, I should have everything that they have because they're the owner, right? I'm, I'm an employee. They are the employer. I don't expect that I should have all the accoutrements that they have. But I think that it's, it's, it's got to come a little bit tighter in terms of what we get paid to what a lot of them, the successful ones are paying themselves. And, um, and that's a really unpopular opinion to have. And, um, I'm not necessarily as steadfast about it because as I start to talk to more shop owners, I realize that they're not necessarily paying themselves as much as I think they should. Right. But I think that's an important point. I think there's a lot of shop owners that are not, they are not making very good money. And it's, and I understand it's always, this is a, this is not a big margin industry. It's always going to be a grind. We just have to accept that because of the relationship of the automobile to the customer. And I I think the unfortunate thing is with where the tech is going, a car is going to be an elite thing in a very near future. I think that when we, you know, so without rambling for another hour we'll have to come back and do a part two at some point matt but i think that we are starting to finally get this change of where we can entice people to come in and stay in the industry and it is going to take it's just going to take money it's going to take money and better treatment like you said everybody needs benefits they need a 401k there's you shouldn't be employing a tech and him having to buy or her their own 250 dollar red wing work boots right like it shouldn't happen it should just be like okay you need a set of boots here's the company card go get yourself some boots you know yeah. we and we're talking about people we need people smart enough to do this they have to be smart enough to fix the cars whatever level that is whichever not even level just whatever area on the vehicle they have to be smart enough to do it yeah it's a different type and yet to put a set of ball joints in and do it in one quarter of the time it's a different type of smart than somebody that can go and tackle a can network issue and solve it. And, you know, Absolutely. I hate to say that, you know, because I said it for years that, that, well, the guy that's solving the can network problem is way more valuable than the guy banging the ball joints in. I'm not completely flipped on that, but I'm realizing more and more, both are very necessary and if they're yes. necessary. It doesn't really matter how much we pay one more than the other. The key thing is we got to pay them both enough that they're happy, that they feel yeah, cause, satisfied. Sorry. Yeah. Because otherwise you're asking somebody that is smart enough to do this and do it really well 
but they have to be dumb enough to do it for a career. Yes. Exactly. Right? They they have to overlook a lot of things that they could take that same intelligence and use and maybe they're flying a desk mm-hmm. or maybe not. Maybe they're working on houses. They're wiring houses, they're plumbing houses, they're welding, they're on construction, whatever. Engineering at some kind of level. Yeah. Right? Like absolutely engineering. And not only are they making more money per hour or per year, they've got health insurance. They have retirements. They have, you know, depending on the situation, the work environment itself is better. You know, let's forget like the skilled trades and that same person is working for a software company Mm -hmm. and they're, maybe they are working in a cubicle, but it's air conditioned. It's heated. It's not even an eight. It's not an eight to five. It's basically, I need you to get this done within the next week. And if you can get it done in two days, take the rest of the week off. Mm-hmm. The flex time or whatever you want to call it. Like that's what we're competing against. And I'm not saying auto repair is ever going to be able to be flex time. That's not realistic. But we can offer a lot of things that can make that decision more difficult rather than we're waiting for these people that just love to fix cars and oh, their wife has a really good job or their husband has a really good job where they get the health insurance and the benefits so they can just work for the money. That's what we're forcing. Yeah. It's, and it's like, imagine making your marital decisions on what their health, you know, benefits plan and and retirement package looks like, right? That's how you have to pick, pick your mate now is, is based on that. It shouldn't have to be that way. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're young and you're starting to have kids and basically, you know, he or she wants somebody is working darn near for free to pay for childcare, daycare. And the other one's working for benefits. Not a lot like, left over at the end to build that dream house. Yeah. So why we we have to fix our businesses and our business practices to make enough money to a give somebody enough money to to really live in the you know geographical area of where they live in the shop and all that. Plus, outfit the shop properly to do the job that we're professing to be able to do at a professional level. Mm-hmm. In a work environment that is enticing, you know, well lit, clean, probably climate controlled, whatever. And then still more money yet to offer benefits to compete with all these other professions. That's where we're at. That's what we have to do. There's what's the alternative? Or otherwise we're just gonna suffocate ourselves. 